Hello everybody and welcome back to the Alien vs Predator Galaxy podcast. This is regular host Aaron Percival. And this is co-host Adam Zeller. And you're listening to episode 105. And we're joined today by a special guest star. If you're a fan of Predator and if you're listening to this, I'm going to assume you are. You've uh, seen him up there, carting away poor City Hunter's corpse and standing uh, all impressively surrounding Danny Glover. We're welcoming Wyatt Weed to the show. Thank you for joining us, Wyatt. Thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And Wyatt actually played one of the lost predators. We know him more commonly these days as the boar predator. So, Wyatt, though, before we start geeking out and, you know, just diving into Predator, could you just tell our listeners a little about yourself, you know, outside of the Predator franchise? Who is Wyatt Weed and what does he do? Sure. I've I've always loved movies. You know, there were various times early in my life when I wanted to be other things, but the majority of my life I've wanted to be a, a filmmaker. I describe myself as a filmmaker because that covers, you know, sort of a multitude of sins, but I, I like to write, direct, produce, sometimes star in, but over the course of my career I've been an actor, a writer, director, second unit director, art department, special effects, sculptor, model maker. So I've really got a varied background in in a lot of things. I'm sort of a jack of all trades. And now what I do is I concentrate mainly on independent films, usually writing and directing independent films and occasionally starring in them, occasionally casting myself in things that nobody else will cast me in. But yeah, just sort of a general purpose filmmaker and, and with an emphasis probably on the horror and the science fiction films. Do you have an interest in you know horror and sci-fi out of making them yourself? Oh, yes. You know, I, I'm not so much of a, a slasher. I tend to steer clear of the heavy gore stuff myself. I enjoy that stuff. But I love a good science fiction film, as we all know, is is engaging on so many different levels. I mean, it's dramatic. It's thought provoking. It can be scary. It can be action packed. And so I really love, you know, the big ideas, the big science fiction ideas. But I also I like I like the creepy stuff that you never see. Like Stuart Gordon has just recently passed away and I got to work on some of Stuart Gordon's stuff, but it it reminds me of Lovecraft. And I love Lovecraft because there's so much stuff hinted at, but not shown. There's like so many creepy concepts right under the surface. So I love the idea of this sense of creeping dread that you never quite see, but you always feel. So when it when it comes to horror films, I'm more about the suspense and the creepy as opposed to the the jump out and throw blood at you. But there are some good blood splatter films that I like too. So certainly yeah. are. Yeah. I've been rereading a bit of uh, Lovecraft lately, actually, because it's a huge sort of part of Alien as well. Yes. You know, the, the other side of the site. And his whole fascination with knowledge driving people insane is, mm. is one that's really been making me think lately because I'm like, I could not think of something that would drive me to the point of insanity like in some of his stories. Oh, what's it? What was it called? The... I can't remember the title, but there was there was one where it was a guy who had peculiar features, and it was a, a family trait, and he eventually learns that it was because he's part some sort of ancient ape creature as well as part human, and it drives him to the point of setting himself right. on fire. Yeah, I just recently watched uh, Color Out of Space. If you've heard of that one, Wyatt with oh, Nicolas yes. Cage, Nicolas yeah, one, yes, yeah. I guess that's based on a um, shorter novella by H.P. Yeah. Yes. Lovecraft. Yeah. Very good movie. Very weird and kind of spooky. (laughs) My personal favorite is I like At the Mountains of Madness. If a studio offered me an opportunity and said, what horror film do you want to make? I would say At the Mountains of Madness. That's 
I've actually written my own spec script of At the Mountains of Madness and would love to do that someday. And I think the mistake with a lot of that stuff, and I, I was so pleased to see Color Out of Space get made because I think they go the wrong direction sometimes. Like At the Mountains of Madness, I know at one point Guillermo del Toro was going to direct and James Cameron was going to produce and Tom Cruise was going to star and it was going to be a hundred million dollar plus blockbuster that you know they were going to have a hard time getting an R rating on. And that's not the way to go. At the Mountains of Madness and Lovecraft films, they need to be small little independent films that don't have to worry about ratings. And, you know, they get to include all the sort of visceral elements that those stories have. I, th I think that's the way to go. Not everything has to be a hundred million dollar film swinging for the fences to make a billion. I'd love to see studios get back to smaller independent films that, that are successful, that aren't billion dollar grocers, but that are successful. It's just it's become so corporate that it's driven out a lot of those. The, the films that I grew up on in the 80s, these little tiny independent horror films that were hugely successful. I mean, the original From Beyond, Reanimator, Fright Night, you know, all these films, they, they were small films and, and they did good business. And that's just not enough anymore. And it, it's sad. It's really sad. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I think you can really make an effective sci-fi or horror film with a, a small budget. I mean, first of all, special effects now are very accessible, more so than they were in the, the 90s and early 2000s for indie studios like with the prometheus and alien covenant i i kind of argued in some of our podcasts after that that i think the alien films going forward should should more be made should be smaller budget and you can still have like a grand sense of scale by just doing things a bit more economically well and again we go back to the idea i mean if you think about alien you know just the idea that this thing was that it was living inside of him and it was growing inside of him and they more they showed you some x-rays and they showed you some footage and you saw the alien rip out of the guy but there was so much that was suggested and horrible and clearly the alien was grabbing these people and dragging them away and doing something with them and there was there was almost as much inferred as there was shown and by by today's standards alien is such a tiny little film but it's still so effective. I've seen it in the theater on the big screen in the last probably year or so, and it still holds up. It's still amazing. It's practical. It's real. It's there in front of you. And it's that's what we aspire to. We're, we're a production company called Pirate Pictures, and we try to make things practical and physical. And, you know, my, my friends are always saying, go get more money. And I'm like, I don't want more money. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that if a studio came to me tomorrow and said, Wyatt, you're our guy and we want to give you millions of dollars. I'm not saying I wouldn't do it. It's just working in the independent film field. We have so much freedom. We have so much freedom to do whatever we think of. And there's so little sort of executive red tape to get through. And it's it's really a, a satisfying and freeing process. Making films at this level, it's challenging. It's always challenging, but it is so much fun. I don't know if I could operate under a studio at this point. I don't I don't know if I could operate under the supervision of a bunch of producers. I yeah, just, I don't, they like I to try, get their, their hands on yeah. things a bit. Whenever we have a guest on, we love to hear about their first encounters with the Predator, especially people like yourself, Wyatt, who have been able to contribute towards the series. Were you already familiar with Predator before you appeared in Predator 2? Yes. I'm, I'm back in St. Louis now, but back in the 80s, I was living in St. Louis and trying to eke out a, a living in the film industry because there wasn't much of a film industry here. So you kind of worked on local 
corporate and commercial stuff. You worked in cable television. And I was going to film school. I, I was a young guy. And I always dreamed of going to Los Angeles someday. And then, of course, in 1987, I saw the first Predator film in the theaters. And, you know, me and my friends, were all young, aspiring filmmakers. And we're all, you know, building our own models and doing our own makeup effects and stuff. And makeup effects in particular were really kind of taking off at that point. Stan Winston was gaining a lot of, you know, clout and notoriety. So we saw Predator. And Predator was, not to overstate the movie too much, but it really is just such an iconic 80s film. And it functions so well on so many different levels. It's a great science fiction film. It's a great action film. It's a great horror film. It's a great monster film. It's a great effects film. It just does so many things so well. So summer of 1987, Predator was the movie. My friends and I probably went and saw it three or four times in the theaters. And, you know, we'd talk about the suit work and, and the special effects and the editing and just, you know, everything about it was so good. And then, of course, back then, we didn't have the internet. So it was all about going to the newsstands and grabbing up all the media. It was like, you know, Starlog and Cinefantastique and Cinefex mm -hmm. and, and Fangoria. It was about getting those magazines. And we'd pour over every detail of these articles. So we knew who Steve Wang was. We knew who Stan Winston was, Shane Mahan, Matt Rose. We, we knew who these people were. And, you know, we just we idolized everything they did. And we tried to study as much of what they did in those films. So so, yeah, I was a big Predator fan. And, th and then the following year in 1988 is when I actually moved to Los Angeles and started started trying to get work in the film industry. For a lot of us, the individuality of the Predator designs is such a huge part of the appeal for the creatures. Now, other than the one you donned, of course, the boar Predator, do you have a favorite Predator design? You know, I think I'm always going to like the the jungle hunter from the first film. I, I think he's the first and the best, you know, the, the city hunter I like, but the city hunter, of course, is so similar to the first one. And of course, I'm partial to the boar, of course. But no, I think the jungle hunter from the first film will always be my favorite. I think he's the cleanest and the sleekest and the his design is just so perfect on so many levels. The elder predator from uh, or I guess maybe he's the grayback from Predator 2. Yeah. I think he's he's very cool looking, but for me personally it's always going to be about that first jungle predator. I think he just he's so well featured too. I don't think the other films do as good a job because there was only one predator in the first film. And they spent so much time just sort of lovingly showing you everything about his function. I, I still think that first film is is probably the most successful on every level. The other films have various things to to like and dislike. But I, that first film to me is still that's the one to beat. That's that's the one to beat right there. So you, the first film would be your favorite out of all of them then? Yes. Yes, sir. As, as a film, as well as the, the creature design. Yes, there are other films in the series that I like, but for, you know, various reasons. I don't dislike Alien versus Predator, but I'm just so tired of everybody bringing everything back to Earth. And it all has to do with Earth. And it just it got so incestuous and feeding upon itself time after time. And even with the continued Alien films, Prometheus and Covenant and, you know, they're just trying to retcon the story and go back and fill in all these gaps. And I think they just should have they should have started from Alien and gone forward. And I think trying to do all the things and tie all these. I love the idea of tying the universes together. I just think they've done a bad job of it. 
I don't think you'll get many disagreements there. I agree with you there, yeah. But I do think Predator versus Alien is is an entertaining film, and it's well put together. I've always liked, uh, was that Paul Anderson? Mm-hmm. Paul W.S. Anderson. I think he did a good job directing the film. I think the film is very exciting. I just kind of had to ignore the story. I just had to kind of watch Sana Lathan and the Predator and the Queen Alien and let him go at it and just ignore the story and, you know, pretend like it was taking place someplace else. So... Yeah, a, a lot of a lot of fans sort of yeah. are disappointed by it being on Earth, but we can blame yeah. John Davis for that one. Yeah. yeah, if there's ever a third Alien versus Predator movie, they would for sure have to do it in space and in the future, I would think, to, to get the goodwill of people. I think the frustration for so many fans, and this goes into a lot of things, this goes into Marvel movies, DC movies, a lot of different areas. For me, it goes into the Batman films in particular, with Alien, Predator, and Alien versus Predator in particular, there's so much good comic book work out there. Such iconic, brilliant storylines. Why they're not mining and tapping those stories more is beyond me. One of my biggest frustrations is, you know, with the DC films, they'll take a little bit of Batman versus Superman. They'll take a little bit of the death of Superman. They'll take a little bit of the Dark Knight Returns rather than just do that. And, you know, and somewhere down the road, someone's going to say, well, let me do Death of Superman. Let me do Dark Knight Returns. And some executive is going to say, well, we already did those. No, you didn't. You you have <laughs> them. You cherry picked them and you ruined them, but you didn't do them. And that's how I feel about a lot of the uh, the aliens. I mean, some of the stuff Dark Horse was doing back in the eighties and nineties. That stuff was just wonderful, and that goes for uh, the Terminator as well. There are some Dark oh, for sure. Terminator storylines yeah. that are just Terminator: The Burning Earth. I think was called should have been. That should have been a Terminator 3. And, you know, they just keep screwing around with these things to get one more film. It's like they're too afraid to do it right. They just want to keep going on those big budget home runs. But I digress. <laughs> yeah, it's been an interesting thing for us as fans, because I, I think you and I, Aaron, we've loved. I would say if we haven't loved, we've liked most of the comics and novels that have come out in the last few years, like Dark Horse and Titan Books are doing a great job. It's just the the last few films that have been pretty divisive among fans. And yeah, there's there's such wealth to tap there in the expanded universe. And I do think there's more room for just straight faithful adaptations as opposed to cherry picking ideas from those going predator specifically i mean the, the hunter series is over the last three or four years you know that that has been absolutely fantastic that is the kind of angle that we would have liked to have probably seen the predator take rather than what it actually yeah. did so yeah i don't disagree with you there at all and i can't fathom i because We've all seen other Shane Black movies, and Shane Black veers from being incredible to what the hell are you thinking? And <laughs> I, and sometimes I think you get the impression that these people, I don't know, they just want to do what they want to do. Like, there's, they're not necessarily... And I've, I've heard this during my time in Hollywood. I've heard stories. And the funny thing about the stories that I hear is... You hear these stories in the trenches and you go, well, that's ridiculous. That can't be true. You, you're, you're full of it, man. That story's not true. And then you find out 5, 10, even 15 years later that, oh, no, that story you heard, that story was true. And a long time ago in conversing with people like Steve Wang and Joel Silver and people like that, they more or less intoned that 20th Century Fox 
it's like 20th Century Fox got saddled with franchises that they weren't necessarily fans of. Like they looked at Alien and they went, well, this is making us money, but we don't want to be in the business of doing these kind of hide and seek horror films. We want to be in a different business. So they kept the franchise name. And then we've all seen what happened with like Alien 3, Alien Resurrection. And then I, you guys have probably heard all the long stories about Vincent Ward and the version of Alien 3 that he was going to do. It's like 20th Century Fox knew they had a franchise, but they weren't interested in pursuing what the franchise was. They wanted to be different and creative, which they get extra points for that. It's just they went so far off the reservation in trying to reinvent the wheel. And the same thing with Predator. I remember talking to Joel Silver at one point about story ideas for Predator Predator films, and he just kind of shook his head in frustration because at that point he had sort of less involvement in the, the Predator films. And he said, uh, they're so set on doing Alien versus Predator their way that we're never going to be able to do anything else. And it was really startling to me to hear one of the initial producers of the Predator series say, you know, just sort of throw up his hands in frustration and go, ah, they're going to do what they're going to do. So yeah, years ago, when people like Steve Wang would say, oh, 20th Century Fox doesn't care about Predator and Alien. They want to reinvent the wheel and do their own thing. I thought that that's not true. That can't be true. And now, all these years later, I'm like, yeah, that's true. Let me take this off track for a minute. You hear stories in Hollywood like Hollywood wants to bury John Carter. Hollywood hates Disney. Hollywood doesn't want John Carter to succeed. The guys who are taking over Disney from the old Disney people... They don't want those guys to succeed. They want those guys to fail. They're going to bury John Carter. And I'm thinking naively, no, you wouldn't bury like a $250 million film just to just to get back at somebody. And then now has the dust has settled years later. Oh, yeah, they buried John Carter. They killed John Carter with a shovel and buried the body. <laughs> and nobody wanted that film to succeed. Everybody wanted to nail everybody else on that film. And we, as the going public, lost out because John Carter was a wonderful film. So you hear these stories in Hollywood. I'll tell you what, the stories I hear now, I, I don't dismiss them. Even if they're unbelievable, I don't dismiss them. I sort of just listen and go, okay. And I file that story away in my memory because it may resurface again someday. So. Hollywood always sounds like a completely mad place where the decision-making is uncomprehensible. That The decision-making of Hollywood belongs in Lovecraft stories. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned Steve Wang, yes. and uh, we know you... You actually had the opportunity to work with him on Predator 2, and he was one of the artists responsible for working with Stan Winston on the very first Predator. So what was it like to work with him? I didn't work with him specifically on Predator 2, although obviously his influence was very heavy on Predator 2. I got involved with him earlier, probably. This ties the whole thing together where, you know, we're fanboys, you know, loving on Predator in 1987, 1988, I move out to Los Angeles. And then probably a year or two later, some of my other friends move out and we're all sort of grouped together and helping each other get jobs. And then working at various effects houses, we start encountering Steve Wang. And at first we're just, you know, we're just so in awe of the guy, but we get to know him and we get to hang out with him. And our big dive was he was making a Kung Fu martial arts comedy called Kung Fu Rascals. And to set the stage for this, Kung Fu Rascals was like a $42,000 Super 8 millimeter 
feature film. And he enlisted our help in making this feature film. So we spent a big chunk of 1990, the year I worked on Predator, we spent a big chunk of 1990 and 91 shooting this this martial arts comedy. And so day in, day out, making films with Steve Wang and, and working with him on these projects. And then from our involvement in Kung Fu Rascals, we weren't stupid. We knew that, you know, Steve was watching us and he was kind of keeping an eye on us and he was sort of assessing us. And we were all friends and we were all hanging out, but he was also kind of looking at our abilities. Well, then Steve Wang got the job to co-direct the first Guyver film and he needed miniature people and suit people and sculptors for the first Guyver film. So he took like half the people from Kung Fu Rascals into the first Guyver film. And then, of course, all of us who worked on the first Guyver film worked on the second Guyver film. So there was like a three or four year period there where it was just me and my friends and Steve Wang doing whatever Steve Wang was working on. Steve is no exaggeration. I don't want to hype the guy too much. Steve is one of the most unbelievably talented and disciplined guys I've ever met. And he's developed his craftsmanship level to such an extreme degree. I can only imagine that working with James Cameron is like working with Steve Wang because he literally can do your job and everyone else's job better than you can. And I don't mean to make him sound like a taskmaster. It's just Steve's input was always to make things better, to teach you a new technique, to push the limits of what you were doing. So even when you thought, oh, I've done something really amazing here, Steve would come in and make suggestions and, and critically analyze some of the things you were doing and show you techniques. And then, you know, a day later, you'd be like, oh, my God, I, I thought this was good. It's even better now. And he just the amount of stuff he knew was just staggering. Just the the volume of information and skills and ability in his head. I mean, it affects me to this day. There are philosophies that Steve had about how to sculpt things, how to design things. I mean, probably the biggest lesson I learned from him was the idea of form follows function, you know? And, and you can look at the Predator. The original Predator design was this tall, gangly thing with long, spindly, multi-jointed legs. It was sort of insectoid. And that was a cool idea. I mean, I actually liked the first Predator design. It just didn't make sense for a large, hulking creature stumbling through the jungle taking out commandos. So the whole, the whole new approach by Stan Winston Studio and Steve and the guys was, okay, for practicality, this thing's trumping through the forest or trumping through the jungle. It can't be some spindly, multi-legged thing. It's got to be like a humanoid form. Now, what can we do with the humanoid form to make the humanoid form look better? And, and Steve has been a big one in terms of paint jobs and artistic ideas behind painting creatures. So if you're going to make an insectoid creature, look at nature, look at insects, look at spiders. So some of the paint patterns and schemes he's come up with, the sort of natural spotting that he put onto the Predator and some of the colors and things that he plays with, just really amazing. And how the Predator operated things. He had long claws, but he had the ability to operate his controls and do things with his fingers. They just they thought everything through so incredibly well. And that's a lot of 
what echoes in my head from Steve to this day is, does it make sense? Does form follow function? He used to say, you know, a bad design can't be fixed with unlimited amounts of detail. He said, if your basic form isn't good, then no amount of detailing and tricks is going to make it good. So Steve was the guy who would say, yeah, your sculpting is great. Your ability is great, but this design is bad. And he just always went for better. He always went for the best. He always was pushing the boundaries and he had the skill to back it up. Working with Steve was like the greatest film school slash art school that I think I possibly could have had. I mean, the guy could shoot and write and direct and edit and act. And he was a martial artist. I mean, he literally, he was like Buckaroo Banzai with a sculpting tool. He was, he was amazing. He was really amazing. Did he ever have any like good war stories or anything from, you know, from the first alien, from the first predator? This is another interesting thing. All the times that we were working with him, initially, probably in those first few months, you know, he kind of kept things under his hat. But as we got all to be better friends and we got more talking, he would talk about Predator and he would talk about other films. And so before I even got involved in Predator 2... I knew all these Predator backstories, so I had sort of all this Predator knowledge and ammunition going into Predator 2. But Steve would talk about how, you know, the first cut of the film that he saw, the scene where the Predator, I, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on the character. The Predator kills one of the guys and drags him off. And the black guy freaks out and he starts shooting into the jungle and all of his friends come up next to him and they all start shooting into the jungle. Steve said that scene was originally like three times longer. And he said it got to the point of funny and ridiculous. They fired into the jungle for so long and they blew away so much stuff. He said they cut the scene down to like a half or a third of what it actually is in the film now. So there was that story. And then he talked about he talked about Jean-Claude Van Damme and the first Predator. He said that Jean-Claude Van Damme was he said that he was, you know, not happy to be in the suit, that he was just seething and angry and because he thought it was going to be himself with some makeup and then it ended up he's inside of this big red foam suit out in the middle of the jungle and he's absolutely miserable. And uh, you guys have probably heard the story about Jean-Claude coming into the makeup shop and they're trying on the leg extensions and Jean-Claude is like, oh, I, I will be able to kick. I will be able to kick very high. And the guys are like, no, Jean-Claude, you're going to be out in the jungle, like on wires and in a big foam suit. You're not going to be able to kick. No, I am a champion kickboxer. I, I can kick. I can kick. I have these leg extensions. I will be able to kick very high. And they're like, oh, Jean-Claude, you, I don't think this is going to be what you think it is. And then, of course, they get him out there in the suit on the wires in 120 degrees and humidity. And he's like, get me out. Get me out of the suit. So he was very miserable and very unhappy. And I think he was fighting with the producers constantly. And he I'm an actor. I want my face to be seen. Um, he didn't have a great command of the English language. So as opposed to saying, don't be dumb, he would say, don't be a dumby. So the makeup effects guy started calling him Jean-Claude Van Dumby. So occasionally we'd be in the makeup shop and do something and Steve would turn around and say, don't be a dumby. And we knew, we knew exactly what he was talking about. So then there's this. There's this rehash because Steve was involved at Boss Film on the first Predator. And here's a cool thing. Steve was involved working on the first Predator. And there's a photo in like Starlog or Cinefantastique of Steve sculpting this Predator arm from the original Predator design. Well, one time we were out on Hollywood Boulevard during Halloween and this guy comes walking by and he's got the original Predator arm on his 
on his arm. He's like wearing a part of the costume on his arm. He's walking around with this big monster arm. I don't know where or how he got it or who he was, but my friend Ted and I were like, hey, that's that's the predator arm. That's the first version of the Predator. That's one of the Predator's arms. And I think the guy was dumbfounded that we recognized it. And I think it scared him because I don't know if he borrowed it or stole it. (laughs) But he very quickly disappeared off into the crowd with his Predator arm. So anyway, that was one of those full circle things. But anyway, so they get the new Predator suit done. They shut the film down for a couple of months. They go back to Los Angeles. They edit some parts of the film. They redesign and rebuild the Predator. They go back out to the jungle. And now the the director, John McTiernan, he's thrilled now because he's got a Predator that works and he's got people who know what they're doing. And Brian Simpson, who will come back to Brian Simpson, Brian Simpson's the stunt guy in the Predator suit. And all those scenes of like the Predator leaping through the treetops and stuff, and he's cloaked, but it's Brian Simpson up there in the trees. And it's John McTiernan saying, well, can you jump tree branch to tree branch? Can you jump through the trees? And Brian Simpson is just leaping from tree branch to tree branch. And there's John McTiernan on the ground with a camera going, yeah, baby, go, (laughs) go, Brian. Yeah, baby. This will all come around as we talk about Predator 2. But something a lot of people don't realize is that Brian Simpson and I are the same size. We're both 6'1". And Brian was one of the primary stuntmen on the first Predator film. So he was essentially wearing a scaled down version of Kevin Peter Hall's suit. It just sculpted slightly smaller to fit Brian's proportions. So a lot of people don't realize when Kevin Peter Hall was not in a scene with Arnold, when when Arnold wasn't on camera, it didn't have to be Kevin Peter Hall. It was Kevin Peter Hall a lot of the time. But a lot of the stunt stuff, jumps, falls, explosions, anything kind of crazy, if no other humans were in the shot, it could be and probably was Brian Simpson. That's what a lot of people don't realize. So a lot of the craziest stuff, the craziest stunt stuff was Brian doing that, which is how that all led to me getting on Predator 2. But they used to they used to make jokes. They used to prank each other on Predator. They were constantly pulling tricks doing weird things to each other. There was a whole thing with being in the jungle in Mexico. They would, there were these frogs all over the place and they would catch frogs and put them in each other's hotel rooms. And (laughs) on the last day of shooting, they took a a bunch of frogs and put them in Arnold Schwarzenegger's suitcases. And (laughs) the whole thing was to try and get each other to react. And so like the following day after the frogs in the suitcase incident, Arnold never said anything. And everybody was just waiting for Arnold to say something. And he never said anything. And they all just were laughing at the thought of Arnold Schwarzenegger racing around his hotel room trying to collect all these frogs. And But it really seems like once the new Predator design happened and they went back to the jungle to finish the film, it seems like the team really came together. And it seems like those guys from Stan Winston's shop, just they had a camaraderie and they were in it to make this damn cool creature and in it to do the best work possible. And that just all gelled the second time around and it went really well. And there's other stories I've heard about things that guys would say to each other, but I'm not I'm, I'm not going to go into that because some of that gets pretty personal. There was a lot of competition with bodybuilding, though. You know, Jesse Ventura would be working out. So Arnold would start working out and then Carl Weathers would start working out. And it was like a competition to see whose biceps were the biggest. And so if you ever see a photo of Steve Wang, he's making fun of everybody. He's sculpting with one hand and he's got a barbell with the other. That's yeah, that's Steve making fun those. of all. Yeah. Because even <laughs> Stan Winston got into it. Stan Winston started weight training because of Arnold Schwarzenegger. And yeah, so I could go on. <laughs> 
Just before we move on, you know, going back to Brian, actually. Yes. Is there any specific sort of, you know, more notable moments from the Predator that you can think of that, you know, it was him on the screen inside that suit? Other than the leaping through the leaping across the treetops, I'm pretty sure it was Brian who made the drop into the water All right. when he jumps into the water and his suit short circuits. And I remember Brian specifically talking about like being out on the I can't remember if he was on the log. There were some giant explosions. And there's a there's some wide scenes of Brian firing his cannon he's looking for arnold and he's firing the cannon and there are some wide shots of just the entire world exploding and that's brian standing there boom 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 (laughs) with these huge explosions going off around him i know that specifically yeah there are also scenes just to reverse that there are some fight scenes in the film there's a there's kind of a, a montage there where the predator starts punching arnold just exchange after exchange after exchange. He's just beating Arnold to a pulp. Go back and watch the film sometime. In that sequence where he's sort of advancing and he keeps repeatedly punching Arnold, that's not Arnold. That's, trying to think of the guy's name, that's Peter Kent. Peter Kent is one of his doubles. And if you watch that sequence, you very specifically don't see Arnold's face in a lot of that. So whereas Kevin Peter Hall is not always the Predator, Arnold is not always Arnold. There are a lot of scenes in that where it's, it's, Peter Kent. like, And I think it was Peter who went off the cliff and jumped into the water, and there's that nice big long drop into the water. There's a lot of shots of Arnold getting pummeled. And go back and watch it again. You'll be surprised at how little you actually see a face. You just see a big muscular guy getting beaten to a pulp, and that's that's Peter Kent getting beaten up. Cool. Well, um, to, to talk more specifically about yourself now, then, what, one of the more common stories about The Lost Predator is how a lot of them were actually played by the LA Lakers, but some, such as yourself, were, were working actors. So right. could you tell us a little bit about how you became involved with the film? You know, it, it all was due to the connection to Steve Wang and Brian. Steve, had, Steve and Brian were friends, and of course, he got Brian involved on Kung Fu Rascals, so I got to know Brian because of Kung Fu Rascals. Now, in Kung Fu Rascals, we all jumped in and played characters, and we played multiple characters. And in Kung Fu Rascals, one of the things I did is I played multiple creatures, and one of them was uh, I played, uh, ironically, this pig man with this big pig face and tusks and a big fat suit. So I played this character who was a pig man, and I'd done other suit work before, so I had a fair amount of suit experience. And because Brian and I worked together on that, what happened is Predator 2 started, and Brian was telling us about what was going on on Predator 2. And and Brian's primary job on Predator 2 was as a stunt coordinator, stunt supervisor, stunt man, because there was so little, obviously, Predator work for him to do until the end scene. So he was involved in doing various stunt sequences. What happened is as they got ready to do that end sequence with all the Predators, they're getting ready to do that scene, and Brian is slated to be a Predator, and they've basically pulled out his old Predator suit mold from the first Predator film, because it fits him, and they've modified it a little. It no longer looks like the original Predator. They've put some new armor, and they put they probably did a whole new recast of the mold, and then re-sculpted new details and made a new Predator. But it was basically Brian's Predator body from the first film. So he's slated to be the Boar Predator in that end scene, and what happened is as that day approached, he was on set, he was in the Predator suit, and to be honest, 
He might be in some of the shots. He and I don't know. I know which shots I was in. He's not sure which shots he was in. I don't know if he cares. But basically, they started shooting, and then they set up a second unit to do the big slide down the side of the building where Danny Glover cuts his arm off, and he slides down the side of the building. And that was going to be a whole big deal in a whole nother setup downtown. They needed Brian for that. So all of a sudden they said to Brian, Brian, we need you to not be a predator. We need you to come down and work on this slide down the side of the building. Do you know anyone who can replace you? So Brian's first thought, because he and I were the same height and the same build, he he and he knew I had creature experience. You know, I, you're probably wondering what kind of prep work did you do for this? What kind of you know training did you do for this? The fact of the matter is I got called on a Monday night at probably eight or nine o'clock at night. And by Tuesday morning, I was in the predator suit. So my prep, my prep for this was, holy crap, I'm going to be a predator. That's what my prep was. So basically, he called me. He said, are you available? Do you want to be a predator? I was like, of course, I want to be a predator. And that was pretty much it. And on Brian's recommendation, I showed up at 20th Century Fox the following morning, walked in, and they stuck me in a predator suit. So they just kind of <laughs> took it on blind faith that I knew that they knew I could do it, that if Brian trusted me, then you must be okay. So you know how they say it's not what you know, but who you know? Uh-huh. My experience in Hollywood has been, it's not that someone less qualified gets the job. It's that you go with the person you know because you trust them. So you don't give the job to somebody who can't do the job. But all things being equal, if if here's a suit performer and you don't know this guy and you don't know what he's capable of, but you know this other guy and you know he can do the work, you go with the person that you know and trust. Every time you go with somebody you don't know, you you're it's a wild card. You don't know what you're dealing with. But if you know and trust somebody, you go with the person because film is hard enough as it is. So rather than roll the dice and take a chance, you go with the person that you trust. So because Brian knew me and Brian trusted me and Brian said, this is the guy he can do it. It was like, okay, he's the guy. So yeah, got a phone call Monday night, Tuesday morning, I'm in the suit. Boom. Yeah. Very quick turnaround. Do you, do you know who are some of the other guys in the other suits then? Because that's, that's a pretty big question that tends to get asked about the identity of the Lost Predators. Personally, specifically... No, I've I probably could drag up some names. I could probably spend some time and shoot you guys some messages. There was a group of fans of several years ago, sort of the beginning of this whole Predator rebirth and my involvement in going to conventions and stuff. There were a bunch of guys, a bunch of fans, and they started contacting various Predators and tracking them down. And I think they did find some of the Lakers guys, and I think their names are available. I, I don't mean this to sound politically correct, but there was like me, one other white guy who was like a working actor, and he was a little taller than I was. And then like the next seven or eight guys were all black guys. They were all L.A. Lakers and they were all taller than we were. So if you can imagine, I'm six foot one and, you know, fighting weight, I'm about 220 pounds and I was the runt predator. I was the smallest one there, if you can believe that. So, you know, on camera, I look fine, but every other predator was bigger than I was. And some of them were towering over me. But I don't personally know any of them other than Brian. Brian and I have communicated more recently and we've talked a little bit about stuff. But no, as far as who the other guys were, and I think it was Danny Glover's sort of passion. Danny Glover and uh, Kevin Peter Hall. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that was their inspiration to go and get these guys. And they were all great guys. Surprisingly, you would think you take that many basketball players and you put them in a space together. Things are going to get kind of crazy. These guys were so, so happy to be there, so awestruck by what was going on. And I think they all just absolutely worshipped. They worshipped Kevin Peter Hall like Kevin Peter Hall worshipped them. They were in awe of that guy. And it's almost like Kevin Peter Hall was holding court. Kevin Peter Hall would sit there in his predator suit with like this collection of, of Lakers sitting around him, just talking and telling stories and communicating with these guys. These guys, it was like Kevin Peter Hall and his posse of LA Lakers. That's kind of how that whole thing functioned. It was pretty crazy to see. But unfortunately, I'm not in touch personally with them. I don't have any of their names off the top of my head. I kind of seem to be the only one who has capitalized on this notoriety, if you will. And I don't know if that's lack of interest in doing it, lack of knowledge in doing it, or just, you know, have, have moved on and done other, done other things. I, I don't know. I seem to be the only one who's willing to sign autographs for Predator 2. So I don't know what that's about. That's fair enough. Now, you, you mentioned literally filling Brian's suit. Yes. So uh, considering how those things tend to be, you know, custom specifically tailored for for a, a performer, you know, what what was that experience like inside the ball suit? You know, did was it a good fit or <laughs> You know, his his torso was a little longer than mine, so if you look at the photos carefully, like I've kind of got sort of a baggy, kind of a baggy crotch, like my body, his body was a little bit longer than mine was, but generally speaking, arms, shoulders, chest, legs, that was all great. Shoes were same, hands were same, that was all fine. I was lucky in that some of the predators, depending on their mask design and uh, certainly the the key predators, they had to take their masks off so they had a face underneath. Mine, my helmet always stayed on. I never had to worry about my helmet coming off. It was Velcroed. So if you needed access to me, you could pull the helmet off. But it's like they'd taken a predator head cast and literally taken like a razor knife and they had cut the face out and removed the face. So I had a little more breathing room and I had a little more clearance. So you know, under all this stuff, I had some space under my mask. And of course, my mask had the big mesh eyes so I could see pretty well. And the suit maybe took 20 minutes to get into You, It was like a full suit, like a wetsuit. So like a big foam wetsuit that you climbed into. Most of these things have a spandex suit with the foam cast on top of them. So there's a spandex suit with a zipper up the back. So legs in, arms in, zip you up the back. The feet are put on, tucked under, arms are put on, tucked in, and then your head gets put on, and then there's a ring covers the seam line. Your back has a, like a fold-over flap that covers your zipper, and then to go to the bathroom, you'll notice I kind of have a little armored cod piece on my suit. You could flip up the cod piece, and there was a zipper there, so I didn't have to get out of the suit in order to go to the bathroom. The suit overall, it really wasn't that bad. People think it would be heavy. It wasn't. If you've ever gone scuba diving or snorkeling and worn a suit and a mask and stuff, it really wasn't any worse than that. It's just we were in them for so long. I think we had a 12 or 14 hour day. And the first hour or two, it's like, yeah, I'm a predator. The next couple of hours, you're like, eh, this, this is a little uncomfortable. And then those last couple of hours, you just... 
it's not that it was claustrophobic. It's not that it was heavy. It's just, it's tight and it's pulling you and it's tugging you. And after a while you're getting crampy and your shoulders are getting sore. And when we weren't going to be on camera for a while, they would pull our heads off. They'd unzip our backs and they'd pull it off of our shoulders so we could get a little air and we could relax a little bit. But they wanted us standing by and ready to go on about a five minute notice. And they kept us hopping. We pretty much shot nonstop all day. They were, they'd set up quickly. We'd move to the next shot. So we were hopping. We were moving pretty quickly. And each predator had a guy basically assisting him. So I had my own assistant. Everybody had their own assistant. So when they'd call for predators, it was like, zip, put your head on, get on set. We'd hold off set when it was going to be, like it was going to take longer than 10 or 20 minutes to set up a shot. They'd take us off set and we'd sit down and take a break. That was fine. Walking on set though, the only way to describe that set was a cool set, but the set was like cast fiberglass shells and they were lighting through the fiberglass shells. So that weird amber brownish red color was the natural color of the fiberglass. So they're lighting through the fiberglass. So basically this thing is a huge fiberglass oven and then they're shooting smoke in to make the atmosphere. So you'd go from like 70 degrees out on the stage to like 120 degrees plus on the set with the lights baking it and the smoke filling it up. And then you're in your predator costume. The the worst it ever got was they were they were using motion control cameras to do the scene where they, they're kind of panning along the circle and the predators are all decloaking one by one. And they were doing one and they had to do the pass twice because they had to do it once without us and once with us. So they had to duplicate the shot. Waiting for that motion control camera to get set, like it would screw up, it would malfunction, there'd be problems, there'd be communication errors, it wouldn't move right. So you're standing there ready to go and stand by and wait. You're waiting and you're ready to go and stand by and oh wait, hold. And so for about 10 minutes, it was standby, wait and hold as those motion control cameras were prepped. That's the closest I've ever come to passing out in my life. I just... My vision started to go and things started to get a little dark and I just concentrated on relaxing and breathing and, you know, I, so I breathed for a couple of seconds and then all of a sudden my vision started to come back. But yeah, waiting for them to call action on those damn motion control shots was that was the worst of it. But even then, I, if it sounds like I'm complaining, I'm not because... I'm a predator and I'll always be a predator and that's like a badge of honor and no one can ever take that away from me. So yeah, it, it was uncomfortable, but honestly, I've had worse. I've, I've had worse, more uncomfortable shoots on regular films. I've worked on Westerns where I was in period costume in period makeup out in the high desert in high heat for days at a stretch. And that was more miserable, miserable. <laughs> than being a predator. There were days working on Steve Wang's Kung Fu Rascals, a super eight millimeter film that were far more miserable than than shooting Predator 2. Predator 2 was, you know, I think I was so overwhelmed by the experience that I, I sort of glossed over any discomfort that I had. <laughs> so yeah, another suit actor we interviewed, Brian Prince, who played the predator in yes. the last film, he he blacked out when yeah. he was in costume. <laughs> There's there's a lot of rumor and mythology surrounding this, but Kevin Peter Hall eventually passed away. 
And I don't remember if it's been confirmed or not. The story was that he was HIV positive. The story was also that his pneumonia was aggravated by the fact that he had a cold suit on. Now, none of us had cold suits, but Kevin Peter Hall had a suit that went under his Predator costume with water pipes, and they could feed cold water in to help cool him down. Well, since then, the technology has advanced, and it's much more regulated, but some people felt that part of his problem with his his pneumonia, and not necessarily just Predator 2, but more films that he went on and did, because it was years later before he died, but that you know, you'd be boiling hot in the predator suit. They'd hook you up and turn on ice cold water. So you'd go from red hot on your chest to ice cold in a matter of seconds. And there are people who, who think that the, the lack of regulation on the cold suit is part of what contributed to the ammonia, which is part of what killed him. And with a weakened immune system. So the, the, the tragedy is that this guy who loved playing these characters and was having such a good run and in, enjoying his film career, the irony is that you know, part of what contributed to him dying might have been the very suits he was wearing. But again, that's all. That's one of those Hollywood stories. It's one of those things you hear. So don't quote me on CNN. It's that's <laughs> but that's the story. That's the hmm. story. And though we don't know where the name actually comes from, we're pretty sure the boar is a fan made name for the predator. Uh, what was your predator actually referred to as on the call sheets? On the call sheets, I think we were just, uh, you know, I dug out, I dug out my pay stub. I have my actual 20th century. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. You'll love this. On my pay stub, it says job description, special ability. (laughs) (laughs) Special ability. And I got a miscellaneous adjustment for 20 bucks. I don't know why I got a miscellaneous adjustment. I don't know what was so particularly difficult above it. Usually you get an adjustment like if you drive on camera or you bring your dog to set or you're playing baseball in the scene. It's like you're going to extra effort. So maybe they just gave us special adjustment just because we were in predator suits. I don't know. But on the call sheets, to be honest, guys, I don't even know if I ever even saw a call sheet. I showed up. (laughs) They checked me into the makeup department. They put me in a suit. They put me on set. And literally on set, it was, hey, you. (laughs) You guys here. You guys there. You over here. You and you. You're going to come forward and pick up this, this dead guy. And if you watch the scene, I don't mean to belittle the film because I think Stephen Hopkins, the director, good guy, easy to communicate with. Everybody was great. Everybody was awesome. They were clicking and moving and just we were doing a lot of stuff really fast. If you watch that end scene, there is no sense of continuity. I mean, predators are in different positions. I'm over here. Then I'm over here. This guy's here. This guy's there. These guys walk in this way and then they walk in that way and we pick him up and then we go this way and then we go that way. I mean, that's scene for as as careful as they were in shooting it and how much footage they got it goes by so fast and it's so disorienting and so crazy but yeah with all due respect to the filmmakers there's no continuity and their whole sense of like you over here you over here they were just filling frames i don't think they were worried about continuity i don't think they cared about consistency i think they knew these are just big ugly predators you're not going to know one from the other Now, of course, the fans, what, 30 years later, the fans know. But at the time, no, it was you over here. Yeah, it was it was pretty loose. It was really pretty loosely structured. I don't even remember. I don't even remember them calling the city hunter the city hunter. And I don't remember them calling Grayback Grayback. Peter was Peter and he was in the Grayback suit. And the guy who was dead on the ground. Yeah, it was just because at a point they did a switcheroo. 
Danny killed Kevin Peter Hall as the city hunter. He fell on the ground. They put in another city hunter in a different suit or different guy in a suit. Then Kevin Peter switched over to the grayback. So we were picking up and walking out with another smaller guy in a different suit while Kevin Peter then played a second character. Kevin Peter was literally playing two characters in the same scene, which is pretty cool. But yeah, it just, it all moved so fast. It was very carefully choreographed chaos. It was like very, very controlled chaos. It was, it was a crazy day. I think John Rosenberg had talked about them, at least referring to the Elder as the Greyback while they were making it. So I do think that one came from, um, came from the production. Right. But you are in that the fans are the ones who kind of came up with this whole mythology, named all of them. It's several years. Uh, we're going way back now. We're going back to like, I don't know, maybe the late aughts or the early teens, probably 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, somewhere in there. I was contacted by a sculptor and I don't remember his name, but he said, hey, are you Wyatt Weed? I, I said, yes. He said, did you play the boar in Predator 2? And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. He goes, the boar predator. And I said, well, I played a predator in Predator 2. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, it's the boar. And then he told me about the lost tribe. He told me about all the different predators. And I was like, oh, okay, that's really cool. I said, I didn't know any of that. He said, I'm working for a toy company. I'm making a toy of your predator. Do you have any photos? So I gave him the photos that I had, which were just two or three photos, and Unfortunately, I didn't have any photos of the back, so he had to kind of create the back. I think he got the back pretty accurately. Well, I forgot about it. I wasn't contacted again. I didn't hear anything about it. Years go by, maybe 2012, 2013, I'm at a convention, and somebody runs up to me and says, Wyatt, your predator is over there. I said, yeah, 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 it's not my predator. He goes, no, 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 it's your predator. And I said, look, people come up to me all the time. There's a Predator 2 City Hunter figure. There's various Predators from the first film. I said, my Predator's a different Predator. He goes, no, dude, it's your Predator. I said, okay, show me. So he takes me over to this booth, and I'll be damned, there's the NECA boar Predator figure hanging there on the shelf. And then I remembered that sculptor from years earlier who had contacted me and got those photos from me. And then all of a sudden it made sense. And so, but that's pretty cool if you stop and think about it, that toys got made off of an official licensed franchise with names and identities based on what the fans came up with. That's that's pretty cool. I mean, short of short of, I don't know, Harley Quinn or some Star Wars characters, I can't think of another situation where fans created something that worked its way back into the mythology. That's that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. But with the Predator action figure. If you look at the photos I have, the hand gesture is even the same. Like there's a photo of me and it's like he he mimicked me right down to like the hand gestures. He really he really nailed the appearance of it. So sometimes sometimes I just sit at home at night and I play with myself. <laughs> What's that like, man? Having having your own goddamn action figure. That's it's pretty cool. You know, this this whole thing, there's something called imposter syndrome. And I understand imposter syndrome because to put this in perspective, I worked very briefly in like April of 1990 on a movie. The movie comes out, I think, fall of that year or late summer that year. And it was reasonably successful, but not as successful as that first one. Predator Predator hung around in 
the zeitgeist for, for years. Predator 2 kind of came and went. Now, I've since had a lot of people walk up to me and say, oh, that's my favorite Predator film. And that's cool. But we thought Predator 2 was going to make us stars. It was going to get us work. We were going to be doing suit work every day. We were going to be doing makeup. And just we thought this was going to launch us out of a cannon. It kind of came and went and nothing happened. So we forgot about it. But you also have to remember, too, this is 1990. There's no Internet. There's no electronic digital photography. There's no snapping a photo and uploading it. There's no Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter. There's nothing like that. So even with me coming on set, I came on set and I brought my 35 millimeter camera. That's why I have those photos. During a break, I said to my handler, I said, dude, can we get some photos? And he looked around and he's like, I don't think we're supposed to do that. But yeah, what the hell? Let's do it. So he got a photo of me holding my head and then we ran outside outside the shooting stage and we got a photo of me in the alleyway with my Predator suit on. But, but back then, I don't think anybody cared because, no, I'm not supposed to have the photos, but what am I going to do? I mean, at best, I could like send them to a magazine and then it would be months before the magazine got published. There was just no way like I could have seen I could have seen a superstar on the street naked and taken a photo, but I still had nowhere to go with that photo. So back then nobody cared. And now it's all just so crazy. So in the early teens, like 2010, 2012, all the internet buzz started and all the Predator fans found each other online and they started forming these communities and they started making up things and naming Predators and coming up with the Lost Tribe and this this whole society formed that had never been able to be formed before. All these groups were able to talk to each other. And so I was at a convention once for a film I'd made. I'd made a vampire film and I was promoting the film at the convention. And this guy walked up to me, a friend of mine, and he said, dude, weren't you a predator? I said, yeah. He goes, weren't you in Star Trek The Next Generation? I said, yeah. He goes, there's a guy over there who was a Harry Krishna zombie for like 30 seconds, 30 years ago in Dawn of the Dead. And he's charging like 25 bucks a pop for autographs. He said, dude, you were a fucking predator. He's like, why are you not signing autographs right now? And I thought, you are absolutely right. Why am I not signing autographs? So my wife and I tried an experiment. We printed up some photos. And the next show we went to, I laid the photos out. And it kind of took off. But over the years, I felt guilty. Like, man, I was only a predator for a very short period of time. And it was in one scene in this movie. And the movie wasn't very successful. And do I have any business laying out these photos and asking people to pay me for an autograph. And so for a long time, I almost felt guilty about it. Like, did this really happen? Do I really have any business doing this? I was at a comic book shop a couple years ago. And this, it was a comic book shop in Lincoln, Illinois, which is this tiny little town out in the middle of nowhere. And this guy found me and he said, dude, what would it take to get you to come to my comic book shop? And I said, pay me some gas money and take me to dinner. And that's not far from where I grew up. I said, I'll stay at my mom's house and I'll drive over to your comic book shop and we can do a comic book appearance. He's like, awesome. Well, I'm in this tiny little town in the middle of nowhere. And I think the entire town showed up at the comic book shop that day. And we made a ridiculous amount of money. But this woman came in and this was for Star Trek. This wasn't even Predator. This woman came in and she stood in the back of the room and it took her a while. And finally, she came up to the table when there was nobody there and she was trembling. She was literally trembling because she was such a huge Star Trek The Next Generation fan. And I don't think it was me. It was the idea that I was probably the closest thing to Star Trek Next Generation she was ever going to see or feel or get close to. And she was so excited, just trembling and quaking to Talk to me about the episode. Talk to me about the actors. 
hear about my experience. And then I posed with her and got a photo with her. And she just, she had tears in her eyes. And that's when it made me realize it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's how important it is to fans. The fans of Predator appreciate it. The fans of Star Trek appreciate it. The fans appreciate it. So I kind of got over the whole imposter syndrome and I started just realizing, no, to Predator fans, it means something. To Star Trek fans, it means something. But I don't have any, I don't have any delusions either. I don't pretend that I'm some great contribution to the Predator of the Star Trek universe. I'm just glad to be along for the ride. I'm just thrilled that I'm able to go to these conventions, hang out with people, talk to them, chat about Predator, chat about Star Trek chat about science fiction it's just it's you know not a lot of people have the opportunity to get invited to conventions and appear at conventions and it's it's really a lot of fun i really it's just genuinely an adventure every time we go to a convention we never know where we're going to end up what's going to happen who we're going to meet it's it's really it's really a lot of fun it really is Good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. And always glad that, you know, people like yourselves do take the time to come and share these stories and, and you know, share your experiences because, you know, they're, they're not always stories that we hear a lot. So that's sure. why I was, I was really happy to, um, you know, when, when you, when you replied and said you was, you know, you was happy to come on the show. I'm, I'm kind of a publicity whore too. You know? <laughs> so it's a, I'm frustrated because I know, I joke about being a publicity whore, but I know very talented filmmakers. I know very talented people who don't like to talk about it and they don't like to appear and they don't like to do podcasts. They don't like to go to shows. And I just, I think then why on earth are you doing this? Why, why are you involved in this? I, the, there's nothing that sort of confuses me more than the introverted filmmaker or actor. Like, I, I, I guess it makes sense. There are bound to be introverts who just enjoy acting, but I love it. I mean, the fact that I get to do this and I'm excited about it and I make films and I, I get to do these crazy things and then people actually want to talk about it. That's just the icing on the cake. It's like I make a movie and then people want to ask me questions about it. It's like, yay, it's my birthday. You know, it's awesome. <laughs> so not only were you in one of the film and the franchise's standout sequence, you you know, you also got to share the frame with the legends that are Danny Glover and Kevin Peter Hall. What was it like working with those guys? Where Danny Glover is concerned, I wish I could say I got to know him better, but the fact was with Danny, we were shooting so fast and he was so like busy and involved. He was very professional, he was very friendly, but he was just moving 90 miles an hour. He was always in a shot. When he wasn't in a shot, he was getting touched up. When he wasn't getting touched up, he was in his trailer. There was really no time to talk. He was pleasant. He said hello, but he was focused. He hit his marks. We did multiple takes. He and the director talked back and forth. We went again, and then he was gone. Whoosh. He was great. He just wasn't very accessible. Very professional, very good guy, but I can't say I spent a lot of time with him other than when we were shooting. And when the cameras weren't rolling, he was elsewhere and he was otherwise engaged. Kevin Peter Hall, though, I'd heard all the stories from Steve Wang. Steve Wang had talked about Kevin Peter Hall, what a good guy he was. And you have to understand, like when they weren't shooting, like on Sundays on the first Predator film, it's a bunch of young guys and Kevin Peter Hall out kind of in a campsite in the middle of the jungle and they would just go off and explore they would go swimming they'd like oh that waterfall scene was really beautiful let's go back to the waterfall and they'd like take off and 
just all go to the waterfall and get drunk and go swimming and screw around. So the stories of them just on the streets in, in Mexico and playing on the location and going sightseeing, those guys were just buddies and they just hang out. So I'm hearing all these stories. I'm hearing about Kevin Peter Hall pranking Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm hearing about Arnold Schwarzenegger pranking Kevin Peter Hall. So by the time I got to actually meet Kevin Peter Hall, I felt like I know the guy, knew the guy. And the thing about Kevin Peter Hall is the guy just seemed so full of joy. I mean, it's like he was happy to be alive. He was happy to be a predator. He was happy to be surrounded by people. He just seemed to be so in love with what he was doing. Like he's this lanky, tall, you know, seven foot two guy. What is he going to be able to do in his life? Like, is he going to get relegated to playing freaks and weirdos for the rest of his career? No, he finds a niche playing creatures and he's good at it. He's Harry and the Hendersons. And he's, I think he was, was I'm thinking he was in suburban commando. He's, he's the predator. I mean, the guy found a niche playing these amazing characters and he was loving it. He was absolutely loving it. And he loved talking about it. He loved sharing it, but he was just friendly on set. How you doing? What's going on today? How was your drive in? What do you think of this meal? It's a pretty good meal. And just, he, he was just genuinely happy to know you, talk to you, mess with you. At one point I was getting suited up and I, I went to walk away and I put my pulled my suit up and I walked away and I like stopped and I like started to walk again and I couldn't go anywhere. And I was like, what on earth is going on? This guy was so tall and his arms were so long. He had he was like standing with his dressers around him and he had reached over and he had grabbed me by the back of my collar and I didn't even feel him do it. So he was like holding me in place by the scruff of my predator suit. And I'm like walking <laughs> and, I, and I turn around and I see him. And yeah, so he was just, he was fun. He was friendly. And when I say he was holding court, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. He'd be sitting in a chair in his predator costume with like eight LA Lakers sitting in a semicircle on the floor in front of him, just listening to every word. And he was just friendly and joking and casual and would answer questions. And, you know, I said, Hey, do you remember Steve Wang? Yeah, I know Steve Wang. Do you know Steve Wang? And just, so the, the Kevin Peter Hall experience was pretty great. He was a friendly guy. He was, he was really sweet and easy to work with, infinitely patient. I mean, I spent a day in the costume. He spent months and months in those costumes and never seemed to be tired, never seemed to be grumpy. He just, you know, like I said, I think he was enjoying life. I think it's a damn shame that he died as early as he did because I think his career would have lasted forever. I do know that John McTiernan, the director of Predator, felt like, Kevin Peter Hall worked so hard and and did so much. He wanted to get his face seen. He wanted him to be seen at least briefly as an actor. So Kevin Peter Hall has that brief cameo the helicopter as the, pilot. Yeah. As the helicopter pilot at the end of the film. And and that was as much John McTiernan saying, "We got to get this guy's face on camera. This guy is he's worked so hard. We got to at least get him a cameo." And then he did that series Misfits of Science for a brief period of time. But I think if his career had lasted, you know how sometimes people get pigeonholed, like you're the big, tall, gangly guy. You always need to play a freak. I think if time had gone on, you would have seen him start to be. It's like um, Bruce Campbell. At first, Bruce Campbell was just this crazy guy who played an evil dead. And now he's Bruce Campbell, the all round celebrity. I think something similar might have happened with Kevin Peter Hall, where they would have started using him in other things and he would would have become a celebrity on his own and he would have become more of a character who would have done more work in more types of films. I think I think you would have seen more of that. But unfortunately, he just he never had the opportunity. Kind of a shock when we heard that he passed. So, he'll always be missed, he will. 
Yeah. I believe some blue or green screen work was also done for the Lost Predators for the cloaking effects. Were you involved in that at all? I was not. The stuff that we did on set, they did the double passes and then they rotoscoped. They would rotoscope us to give us the the cloaking effect and then they would dissolve us in and out of the plates. But you're talking probably more for the blue screen stuff at the end where they all walk off and disappear. I was not involved in that. They didn't do that there that day. They got the plates that day of the set, but the, the actual blue screen stuff they did at another time. And God knows who was in. I don't even know if the boar is in those shots. You know, if you watch the scene, I've watched the scene a hundred times. There are shots I can't tell what's what. I can't tell who's what. I don't know if the boar is in that scene. I don't know if there's somebody else in the suit that day. I don't know if Brian was brought back. I don't know if the secretary got pulled and stuck into the suit. I have no idea. So, yeah. But no, I was unfortunately not involved in the uh, in the blue screen work. Yeah, I just got the uh, the 4K set myself, and I've been meaning to rewatch Predator 2 to see if I can spot any more details right. with the higher resolution cut. Is there any additional footage of your time on the film that we haven't seen so far? No, that's pretty much, I mean, other than the fact that we shot much more complete takes. That's what shocked me when I saw the film is, you know, in the film, it's just a lot of whipping camera angles and quick cuts. But everything we shot was complete in itself. Like you would go 360 around the circle and then somebody would do something or you'd pan across all the decloaking predators in one take and then the final predator would exit frame. They were much more complete shots that made more sense. When you saw the finished film, it was like whipping across the circle, whipping across the circle, whipping across the circle, and then decloaking predators, decloaking predators, decloaking predators. It was all cut very fast and choppy. The only thing is people constantly ask me about the uh, dancing predator bit. That was done beforehand. They were like rehearsing and prepping and testing their suits and stuff. That's Brian. I didn't dance. That happened the day before, <laughs> two days before I got there. So that was them dancing. But yeah, about once a month, I get a note from somebody saying, hey, is this you dancing? No, that is that is not me dancing. That honor, if, if Brian has a signature moment from Predator 2, it's the dance sequence. That's That's all Brian, baby. That's all him. So the inclusion of multiple Predators was something of a big secret leading up to the film's release you know when there was a rumor that got out about it and every time you know uh, Stephen or, or the thomas brothers or whatever were asked about it you know as a uh, we don't know what you're on about this if there's if there's multiple predators in this it's news to me and uh, i know you've touched on this slightly but i'm not sure how it would rate in terms of the filmmaking secrecy that goes on today but how did you find that secrecy surrounding your involvement in predator 2 you know it it's funny because it all goes back to the internet again, because I don't recall signing any secrecy or non-disclosure agreements. I remember walking in and signing a deal memo, signing on the little permission slip that gives them the rights to use my likeness. I remember that. And, and other than the one makeup guy looking at me and going, well, we're really not supposed to take photos, but it was such a different environment. And I went around for the next six months, like people would say, hey, dude, you worked on Predator 2. Tell me about it. And I would tell them. There's a scene at the end where Danny Glover thinks he's killed the main guy and then all of a sudden more decloak and he suddenly realizes he's surrounded. And people are like, oh my God, that's so cool. But without a mechanism to spread that stuff, you know, and I, I wasn't asked to be interviewed by a magazine. I didn't, like I said before, like Stephen Hopkins, somebody says, hey, I hear there's more predators in this. And he tells Starlog or Cinefantastique or whoever, he goes, yeah, I don't know what that's all about. It took 
we didn't have Skype ability even. We didn't have these kinds of things. Like a reporter would have to schedule an interview, go and meet the person. If they weren't using a tape recorder, they had to take notes and then they had to transcribe notes. So days, if not weeks, would go by. Then they had to write up a story. They had to submit it to an editor and then it had to get published. So minimally, months went by before even an answer got given to a question. So it just was so little consideration at the time. It was almost shocking how little concern there was for the secrecy. There just there was simply no mechanism in place to spread these kinds of rumors. I think maybe if I was an actor of more significance or I had a speaking role in the film, or maybe they knew I was going to be on a talk show or something, maybe they would have had more of a discussion with me. But there was just so little concern. On the Guyver films, the first Guyver film, Mark Hamill was on that film. There was no special rules surrounding Mark Hamill. There was nothing to stop us from walking up to Mark Hamill and saying, hey, this I have this question about Star Wars, blah, blah, blah. It was free game. There just There was no place to put it. Here's an interesting anecdote. I was walking on a soundstage. Or I was walking through a studio once in Hollywood, uh, Raleigh Studios, maybe. Anyway, I'm walking through this studio, and I look at it. There's a stage door open. And I walk by this, this soundstage, and, the, and I look in the stage doors, and I freeze in my tracks because I'm looking at the carbon freeze chamber from The Empire Strikes Back. And the lights are on, and the smoke is rising, and I'm like, dear God, I know that set. That's the carbon freeze chamber. And I walk over to the door. I'm like, oh my God, what am I looking at? Are they shooting more Star Wars? Is this a flashback? What is going on? It's the carbon freeze chamber. And a stage guy walks over and he's talking to me. And I said, what is going on here? And the guy just smiles and he goes, Darth Vader versus the Energizer Bunny. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, that's amazing. Again, he wasn't worried. He didn't care. There was no internet. Who was I going to tell? And so, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't have your stage door standing wide open today if the Energizer Bunny was going to fight Darth Vader. You wouldn't you wouldn't do that. But back then, yeah, they didn't care. There was just so little mechanism for it. It was such a different time. And I really I don't mean to be a baby boomer who's all nostalgic and reminiscent for things that don't matter. But it really was a different era in I think of the build up to Star Wars back in 1977. And like six months out, I I saw the first article in Starlog and it was like Ralph McQuarrie concept art. And then a couple of months later, I saw something in another magazine. And then a, one trailer came out and you had to see the trailer in the movie theater. And the buildup was just so incredible. And it took like six months to promote the film. And then the film, Star Wars played in theaters in St. Louis for a year and a half straight. Now, you know, you promote the hell out of the film in the two weeks prior to the release the film is in theaters for two or three weeks, and then it's gone, and it's made a billion dollars, and it's gone away. Back then, the promotion and the buildup and the the work surrounding these things was so very different. And the control and the, I don't know, the manipulation of the message and the control of the media was just so precise and so good. And it just, it, the buildup to these things and the flavor they left you with was really astonishing. And, and that's just all gone. It's just... You're bombarded, it comes, it, it makes a ton of money, and then it disappears, and it's just gone. And it's, you know, you're lucky if your film, if you're lucky enough to have your film hang around, if you're lucky enough. But yeah, back then, I just, the lack of the internet and the lack of instantaneous digital processing just really made things very different. You just, you were never that concerned about, you know, where something was going to go. You just, you never were. 
Well, it's something of a favorite nowadays. Predator 2 didn't release to the same sort of popularity that it has now. Do you remember the first time you actually got to see the finished film? And what were your impressions? Were you at the premiere? I was not at the premiere. Since I was a a nameless special ability, no, I was not at the premiere. (laughs) I don't honestly remember there being much of a premiere for it. I'm sure there was a cast and crew screening. I don't remember a big Hollywood premiere. I don't think there was. I remember my first impression of the film. I probably saw it in a big Hollywood theater. I probably saw it in the Chinese theater or something like that. And I remember being a little underwhelmed at first. And over time, my opinion has changed. But I think because the first film was so... First film is pretty bombastic. I mean, it's just action and forward momentum and bullets and blood. And that first film is just such a monstrous sort of move forward. And then Predator 2 is a very different film. I think they were very ahead of their time and maybe too ahead of their time. The fact that they were dealing with global warming And you go back today, all the things I missed when I first saw it, just sort of, you know, the idea that the Predator is, in some respects, the least they have to worry about. I mean, the city is so messed up. The gang warfare is so horrible and violent. The Predator almost arrives and sort of focuses everybody's energy. It's like, as opposed to everybody killing everybody else, now they're all worried about who's this one thing killing the bad guys. So I think the film was working on different levels and it was playing with things that at the time I wasn't really willing to listen to or watch. So I came out of the film kind of liking it. I was really disappointed the first time at how fast that end scene was. It just seemed like nothing was focused on. But at that point, I think they were just trying to whiz you by and get you to the finale. Like they didn't want to show you too much. They didn't want to dwell on it too long. They wanted to impress you, leave you with an impression, get out and get to the end of the film. So in retrospect, I watched the film and the, the global warming means more. The new jungle being the inner city means more. The gang warfare and the significance of sort of the superstition of the the gang members and their superstition regarding the predator and what the predator is. And just all the things going on in this slightly futuristic version of Los Angeles. There's, There's much more to the film than I think got absorbed the first time. I think if that film had been released now, it would get beat up because it's not a huge budget film. But I think if that film had been released now, it would feel much more relevant. I think those guys were about 10 or 20 years ahead of themselves on just the themes and everything they were dealing with. I think if that got released today in the climate that we're in today, people would see it as a metaphor for all these things. And I think it would be it would be critically evaluated very differently today. I've grown to really like the film. I still can't say that it, it beats Predator in my book, but a lot lot of fans come up to me and talk about Predator 2 being their favorite film. I also think that maybe younger fans with the growth and explosion of VHS and DVD, I think a lot of them were raised on Predator 2. They had it on VHS or DVD or it was on cable in constant rotation. For me, it was all about Predator and having a Predator VHS. But I think a lot of a lot of people tend towards the films that I think they were they were raised on, like the one that was in constant rotation on on cable television. Like I know kids who talk about their love for Masters of the Universe. And I think, well, Masters of the Universe is a pretty horrible film, but it was the film that was on cable when they were young. It was the film that they had the VHS copy of. It was the film that they had the toys of. So, you know, it, it makes sense that it gets stuck in their heads the way it does. So a lot of these young fans, it's like, yeah, Predator 2 is their first entry into the Predator universe. It's it's like Predator and Alien fans who are all about the Predator versus Alien films and because they weren't there for Alien. They weren't there for Aliens. They were there for Predator versus Alien. So that's everything to them. And I'm like, that's cool, but you should look at a little film history. You should you should go back and review some of these. So 
And we always love to know if our guests have any keepsakes from their time on the films. Now, I know you showed the uh, the replica mask and the figure, but was there anything you snuck off the set? Do you have a Predator costume hung up in your wardrobe somewhere? I do not. And I have props and I have certain things from other productions. But with Predator, it was weird because, first of all, let's be honest, there wasn't an opportunity to take anything. At the end of the day, <laughs> I had a dresser pulling things off of me and putting them away and hanging them up. But I also, being a makeup effects guy and having special effects experience, I knew they were probably saving that stuff for reshoots, for other films. They were probably going to recycle these things and mix and match if they made any more stuff. I later found out that I understand a lot of stuff from Predator 2 got stolen. That's the rumor. The rumor is that stuff got stolen. I don't know if that's true, but a lot of people talked about how all that stuff got swiped. That's why they called the Lost Predators, because the suits were literally... (laughs) So I understood. I mean, I would have felt the frustration if I went to do a pickup shot and the suit wasn't there. I've been on films where the production shuts down, you edit for a month, you go back to do a couple of days of pickups, and you're like, where's this? Where's this? Oh, well, so-and-so took it. Oh, well, so-and-so took that. It's like, you tell so-and-so to get that back here, because that doesn't (laughs) belong to so-and-so. So as a filmmaker, I would have been frustrated had, you know, the Predator suit walked off. So no, I I didn't get anything from Predator except the photos. And I'm probably apparently the only guy who got away with, with some photos. I did take stuff from Star Trek. When I was on Star Trek Next Generation, I had like a little comm badge thing on my uniform and I got away with that. And when I was walking through the engineering section of the Enterprise, they had these little isolinear chips, which were the little chips in the engineering section. I stole an isolinear chip and took that with me. And uh, I've since talked to people who worked on Star Trek or who visited Star Trek. And apparently, like, that was the thing to steal. And apparently they spent a lot of time over the years making more isolinear chips. <laughs> People just kind of walked through the engineering section and stole. They're like, yeah, they took a lot of chips over the years. We replaced a lot of chips. So, And I've got stuff from other productions here and there. But no, unfortunately, other than, you know, Chad's uh, nice replica boar mask, I, I don't have anything. I don't have anything from the film. Also, just of interest, that stuff has to be very carefully preserved, like hard castings, resin castings and things like that. That can stand the test of time. But the foam suits themselves, that's, you know, custom mixed and cast foam rubber. And that stuff is not properly sealed and kept, you know, having that sealed in a case or airtight is really good because just exposed to regular air and Los Angeles air in particular, that stuff degenerates and foam will break down and start to rot over the course of a couple of years. So those suits, the ones that survived, probably got bagged and wrapped up and stuck someplace cool and dry to preserve them. And even then, they lose their elasticity and they start to crack over time. So that's why a lot of archival stuff is hard resin castings. As opposed to foam castings, they'll do hard resin casts just to kind of preserve the the history of them, if you will. Yeah, I was able to tour uh, Studio ADI Ah. in the LA area a couple of years back and they had the showroom with all the hard resin casts of their creatures but when I saw some of the stuff in back I saw the old latex Predalien from ABPR and it was all like degraded and splitting so latex yeah it's just not meant to to last yeah yeah very true very true now you once mentioned that you actually tried to pitch a, a predator film to Joel Silver do you still remember a bit about what you had in mind for that 
Oh, absolutely. And here's here's how the here's how it went. I got to meet I got to meet Stan Winston very briefly on Predator 2. He came through and was checking up on everybody, making sure everything was cool. And so I got to meet him and talk to him briefly. I didn't get to meet Joel Silver until a few years later. And it's weird how it came about because because I did all the miniatures and the art department stuff and the scenic work. I ended up working for Joel Silver from a completely different direction. And that was Joel Silver is an avid collector. So the guy would collect toys, cars, motorcycles, antiques, you know, all this kind of fine antique wear from all around the world. I mean, the guy was like Citizen Kane. He's going to have this big room full of boxes at the end and Rosebud is going to be stuck in one of the boxes. So I ended up working for him restoring things. So he'd bring home an old toy from the 1950s that was partially broken and want the toy re- returned to pristine condition. He'd he'd have a little marble statue from the last century from Europe somewhere and a limb would be broken off. So he'd want me to repair the limb and stick the limb back on. So it was weird then because as opposed to me coming to him from the front and going, hey, Joel, I want to pitch you a movie idea. I probably would have gotten stopped. But because I worked with him for months, if not years, behind the scenes, we got to be friendlier and we got to be closer and we got to be more personal. And so I could I could go in and talk to him and, hey, what's going on and how's it going? And I was one of the first people I walked in one day and I said, are you guys ever going to give the next two Matrix films titles? And he goes, yes, we have titles. He said, it's going to be Matrix Reloaded and Matrix Revolutions. And I was like, oh, awesome. That's great. Joel, are we ever going to see Zion? Are you ever going to take us to Zion in the Matrix films? Oh, yeah, we're going to take you to Zion. You're going to see Zion. Um, And one day we went into his office and he had a little maquette of the armor suits that the guy wears, that the guys wear in the uh, the Matrix films. So I was really on the inside track, but now it was more on like a first name basis. It was very relaxed. So me and another guy were talking to him one day and, you know, he was slowly figuring out that we had aspirations. We worked in the film industry. We wanted to direct. We wanted to write. He knew that. And the conversation came up as like, Joel, what would it take to, to ever get a pitch with you? And he's like, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to do a Predator sequel set before the events that we've seen so far. I want to see a Predator sequel set in the early days of World War II. Oh, Yes. And Joel, almost immediately, that's when I got the reaction out of him. He goes, oh, God, Predator. He's like, he's like, I, I don't, he says, I don't have that much to do with Predator anymore. He's like, those guys, they want to do Alien versus Predator. I don't know. Uh, and he just sort of blew it off. And I went, okay, well, I tried. But what happened then is he set us up with his pitch guy. And I can't remember his pitch guy's name, but his his pitch girl, his like story development person was a woman named Susan Levine, who Susan Levine went on to marry who is Iron, uh, Robert Downey Jr. So Susan Levine eventually married Robert Downey Jr. So we did eventually go in and meet with Susan Levine and her guy. And basically, I, I pitched them. Joel didn't want to hear it, but I pitched them. And they honestly liked the story. And their suggestion was, let's take it out of the universe of the Predator. Let's make it a different alien. Let's make it different characters. And let's tell that story. But I felt like that sort of diluted what it was. Here was the pitch. The pitch was that in early World War II, there are some soldiers marching across the Polish countryside, and suddenly there's this massive explosion. They're knocked down. The countryside is flattened, and they look up in time to see a huge mushroom cloud rolling into the sky. These guys are retrieved and brought back to the United States, and they quickly die of what they figure out is radiation poisoning. But before they die, they basically say, we witnessed some detonation of some huge, gigantic weapon. Well, the U.S. figures out that 
the Nazis have developed the atomic bomb and, they, and they're testing it in the Polish countryside. The Manhattan Project is stalled out and apparently the Nazis have taken the lead in atomic bomb technology. So they get this one special ops guy and they send him into the, the Polish countryside to see what he can find out. And he comes across a secret Nazi base where they're developing all this incredibly advanced technology. He then also becomes aware that something in the surrounding woods is playing hell with and is attacking the, the Nazis. He gets knocked unconscious one night. He wakes up in a cave. He's standing there with a predator. The predator has hooked a translation device up to him. He can roughly understand what the predator is trying to say to him. And basically, they, he explains that his ship crashed accidentally in the area. And while he was on recon, the Nazis came, commandeered his ship, took it into their base, and now they're reversing all of his technology, and that's how they've developed the bomb. Now the Predator has been trying to raid the base and get his ship back. The twist is that he was traveling with a mate, and the mate is pregnant, so he's he's being careful about how he raids the base and what he does because he doesn't want to endanger his mate. So basically the American soldier and this young Predator warrior join forces to assault the Nazi base to, to get the technology and get, and I won't tell you what the climax of the whole thing was, but at the very end, there's an epilogue where you jump ahead to the Manhattan Project here in the United States, and they've just successfully de detonated the Trinity bomb test. And you dissolve to a dark laboratory somewhere and you see dismantled alien technology and you realize mm -hmm. we instead ended up with the technology and we developed the bomb. So that's my that's my pitch for a Predator film. Set it in World War II, make the Predator not such a bad guy this time and uh, have a, a, an American and a Predator join forces and you know have some Nazi killing and some Nazi bashing. And I will tell you, I'm not saying someone stole the idea because people come up with the same idea all the time. When I saw Captain America, the Marvel film, the whole end with the giant flying wing and the battle on the flying wing, that was sort of what I envisioned for the end of my Predator movie. The Predator and the soldier get on board this giant flying wing that's carrying an atomic bomb and there's this massive battle and the Predator ends up sacrificing himself and detonating his self-destruct device and taking out the flying wing and the, the American soldier parachutes out. And when I saw the end of Predator, or when I saw the end of uh, Captain America, I thought, well, my Predator film is not going to end that way now, but <laughs> but the basic plot, I think, there's so much opportunity. Predator in medieval times, Predator in the future, Predator hunting dinosaurs. There's it's so many so versatile Predator is, yeah. and the the period stuff is is something that a lot of people, a lot of fans have have real yes. interest in. You know, yes. Dark Horse did all over the timeline as well, and yeah. there was a a previous fan film called Dark Ages that was all medieval yes. and stuff as well, which was fantastic. Yes. Yes. The fan films are amazing because they're able to cut through all the crap, get rid of all the studio interference, and they're able to go for the heart of it. And they're not always the most technologically advanced, but usually the concepts are so pure of heart and so just straightforward. I, I love fan films. I love that whole, the emergence of that whole thing. I just, I love that whole sort of, I don't even know what you'd call it, subgenre. I just, I love, I love the fan films. There's a lot of bad ones out there. There's a lot of amazing ones out there, too. Really good fan films. Given your work on The Dark Knight Returns and just how accessible, awesome Predator costumes and performers are thanks to the cosplay movement, would you ever have any interest in doing your own Predator fan film, either directing, writing, or donning the suit again? You know, more recently, my Dark Knight Returns fan film, it was supposed to be a one-off. I did that several years ago, and I just... 
all I ever really wanted to do was kind of that first story where a retired older Bruce Wayne snaps and comes back to being Batman. I just kind of wanted to do that first chapter. It got such a good reaction that I'm seriously, I've been working on doing the rest of the story. It's a massive, massive undertaking, especially when you're doing it without profit and you're you're trying to get so many people involved. But I've been slowly developing the rest of the storyline, building props, finding locations and so forth. In the meantime, I've thought about taking that predator story that I just told you about, the idea that a predator has crashed and somebody has appropriated his technology. And I thought how fun it would be. I know there are predator versus Batman stories out there. I thought it would be incredibly fun to sort of transpose that I called it Predator Armageddon. Transpose my Predator Armageddon story over into the Batman universe. And basically, Batman becomes aware that something is stalking and killing people in Gotham City. And similar to the American soldier, he encounters the Predator and is able to communicate with it. And you find out that Lex Luthor has commandeered the Predator's ship and is reversing the technology for all kinds of heinous and nefarious purposes. And Predator and Batman join forces to raid Lex Luthor's stronghold and get the ship back. So I wouldn't mind doing just a basic Batman versus Predator film, but I think we've probably advanced enough past that. And uh, I would like to move into something a little more uh, interesting, like, you know, Batman and Predator developing some sort of relationship. You'd have to have some sort of an initial fight, some sort of an initial showdown, because I think Predator versus Batman That'd be kind of a dead match. I mean, Batman doesn't have the strength that the Predator does, but Batman's got devices and he's got tricks. And I love how someone described it once. There are people outside the comic book fandom who say, oh, Batman defeating Superman. That's just ridiculous. That would never happen. But people forget that Superman at his core is a very good guy. He's a true blue, good and fair person. Batman at his core is a sneaky bastard (laughs) <laughs> who will who will do whatever it takes under some circumstances to win and get the upper hand. So that's how Batman is able to defeat Superman. And I think much like that, Batman versus Predator, I think as soon as I think Batman would very quickly figure out what Predator is, what he's capable of, and he would bring all of his devices to bear. And he'd be a pretty even match for a Predator. Obviously, he couldn't take him hand to hand. But no, I'd love to move past that just slugfest and do something where Batman and, and Predator sort of join forces and have to complete a mission to defeat an evil. Now, this is me saying this, you know, with three chapters of The Dark Knight still ahead of me and this idea, and I'll be 56 years old in May. So I am I am the Dark Knight now in that I'm an older guy who's still trying to get this stuff done, but it's getting harder and harder to do. And I just don't know if I'm going to be able to pull it all off, but I'd, I'd love to try. I'd really love to try. So yeah, I have thought about doing some some Predator fan films. So that that is actually everything that we have, Wyatt. Is there anything you'd like to say, any anecdote or thought that we haven't given you the opportunity to share with um, any of our questions so far? No, I think I've I think I've pretty much shared with you just about everything that I'm aware of. I do hope for the future. I do hope that with regard to Predator and Alien films, I hope that they're able to gain their footing and sort of get these things back on track. I I pray they don't ever try to do just a ground up reboot. 
But I, I would like to see the dust clear, let things settle for a few years. And then I'd love to see somebody go back and just do an honest to God, straight up alien film and an honest to God, straight up predator film. I'm of the camp that I hope maybe there's still time to do the alien film where it is all just a dream. She <laughs> does wake up in a hibernation chamber. All that stuff in Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection didn't happen. It's all a bad nightmare. And it's Ripley back at Gateway Station. And, you know. So you're, you're a Blomkamp fan then? Yeah. Um, I, and I don't know enough about what his storyline was. But no, I think that would have been brilliant. I think it, it. I'd love to have seen that. And and again, with 20th Century Fox and their crazy way of thinking, why they couldn't see the wisdom or the value of that is beyond me. And I love Ridley Scott with a passion. But I was so profoundly disappointed in Prometheus that I didn't even bother with Covenant because my feeling was, oh my God, Ridley Scott is back at the helm of an alien film. This is going to be great. He is going to write the ship. He is going to set us back on course. And he just sort of, you know, wound up the Frisbee and just threw it off in a whole different direction. So yeah, Ridley, I, I don't know what's up with Ridley because when he's good, he's very good. When he's off the mark, I don't know what the hell he's doing, but he's always an interesting visual stylist. I just think he's only as good as his script. Yes, yeah. that is exactly. Yeah, he's exactly. he's way more of a, in my view, a world builder than a, a storyteller. And when yes. he gets too involved with the stories, it it ends up being disappointing, in my opinion. Covenant is worth a watch. I was disappointed with it, just like I was Prometheus. But the production design and and the acting's great too. But the production design, especially, is just so well done. With the Predator films, I feel like Predators. I thought it was kind of a nice, it, it, it sort of worked. It was like, let's get back to kind of a standalone story. And this is an interesting premise. Let's take these guys and let's drop them on this planet. I thought that was interesting. It wasn't brilliant, but I enjoyed it. And yeah, and then, you know, so we could have kind of kept going. I, I think this insistence of franchise building and this insistence of interconnecting everything. And I, I'm sorry, you start getting into too many levels of predators and predaliens and predator dogs and this and that and predator predators and just it gets so convoluted just keep it straight and simple keep it a b c keep it just you know just tell a good story focus on a good story and stop worrying about selling toys stop worrying about having five offshoots of different movies yeah just just tell us good straight solid stories so that's that's my hope for the future my hope for the future is that we can get back on track and that somebody will bring these back to zero and just and make them take them back to the basics maybe i keep my fingers crossed that some place like netflix or amazon or apple tv is going to figure out that oh hey wait we can we can spend less money and make these things for cable television and we can be more creative and have more freedom with them. If someone came to me tomorrow and said, hey, make your Predator film for Netflix, we'll give you, you know, $50 million to make your Predator film for Netflix. I'd be like, I'll tell you what, give me $50 million. I'll make five films for Netflix and leave me alone. Leave me alone. Give me creative freedom and I will give you the best damn Predator films you've ever seen. So and I'd go back and talk to Steve Wang and I'd say, Steve, <laughs> what did you not get to do on the first Predator that you would like to do now and see what Steve says? So where, where can folk find you online, Wyatt? Where can where can people see the stuff that you're working on and uh, learn a bit more about you yourself? Of course, I'm on Facebook. I'm Wyatt Weed on Facebook. And my wife runs a site called on Facebook called So I Married a Predator. <laughs> and she 
she relates funny stories and quirky anecdotes about the fact that she married a guy who played a predator and some of the weirdness that happens and the convention stories and some of the the things she finds me doing. Like she'll come in in the middle of the night and I'm half dressed in a Batman suit trying on armor and she doesn't know what's going on. So or she'll come in and I'm, you know, I'm doing something with my predator action figure. I've got my predator action figure and I'm taking a photo of it or something. She she doesn't know what's happening. So so I married a predator. I have a website called whiteweed.com and then that has contact information and email contact for me. I post a lot of stuff on there. I'm also on uh, YouTube. I'm Wyatt Weed on YouTube, and that's where you can see The Dark Knight Returns. You can see some of my other short films. And I've I've just finished a short film that uh, I don't know where that short film's going because it was made for a local film contest, and I was going to sit on it until the film contest happened. But with COVID-19 and everything being postponed, I don't know if that film contest will happen. I don't know if the public screening will take place. So I'm going to hold that film for a little while till I know what's going on. But I'm, I'm constantly releasing things on YouTube and updates about what's happening with The Dark Knight Returns. And uh, I'm, I'm always available to answer questions and uh, sell merchandise and just, you know, generally, generally get involved in creative filmmaking and fun stuff. Any plans to, selfishly here, of course, any plans to come over to the UK at any point for any of our conventions? You know, I, I just was talking with a friend of mine. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Evil Ted Smith, but Evil Ted is, he's known for being a costumer. He he was part of the Giver Kung Fu Rascals, Steve Wang crew, and Ted Smith has been a filmmaker and a suit performer and a lot of different things. But Ted, Ted Smith's big thing now is uh, is teaching people cosplay on the internet. Well, he just got back in January from a trip to the UK and his photos, I, I'd always wanted to go to the UK and apparently I'm related to the Turnbull clan who are on the border with Scotland and uh, like my great grandfather came over from England. So uh, apparently there's much for me to learn and find in the UK, but I've just always wanted to go because of the history. And I've always wanted to see London. I've wanted to see the, the white cliffs of Dover. I've, I've wanted to go for a long time, but seeing my friend Ted's photos, uh, those photos were just astonishing. And some of the, some of the sights he saw and some of the things he saw, so the answer to your question is yes, I would love to. I don't know when that'll be, when I can finance the trip and do it. If for any reason anyone wants to fly me over there for a show, <laughs> I'd be happy to jump on a plane and come. I'm hoping that uh, the Titanic 2 gets finished and actually starts making regular trips because I would love to take the Titanic 2 to England. I oh, think I, heard, I heard about that replica ship plan yeah that that would be something it keeps getting delayed and it keeps getting postponed and i know all these people who are like no way i'd get on the titanic 2 i'd get on the <laughs> titanic 2 in second i'd get on the maiden voyage as long as they had enough lifeboats this time and and apparently differ from the have, historical accuracy just a little bit yeah they they have apparently <laughs> fixed that part of the problem apparently there's there's lifeboats <laughs> and modern safety features and you know a properly built hull and yeah so I have to show you guys a couple of things. Uh, Aaron, this is more in honor of you. I was looking at my toy shelf earlier. I was cleaning up my office here. And uh, in, in honor of the UK, um, I have my Corgi <laughs> 5. This is the Corgi toy that shoots the little guy out with the ejector seat. And oh, so a James Bond car then, huh? Yeah. I got my, yeah, my James Bond Aston Martin DB5. And on my shelf, I realized I also had uh, Thunderbird oh, 1. Thunderbird. And Thunderbird 3. And I have more Thunderbirds around here. It's just they're too big to put out. So in, in honor of uh, the UK audience, I wanted to uh, pull these out. Was Jerry Anderson not really big over in the States? 
You know, Jerry Anderson was big. They they aired they aired the, the original Thunderbirds show kind of in syndication here, probably a year or two or several years behind the UK. So late 60s, early 70s, I can remember like Saturday mornings seeing the Thunderbirds. But the other stuff, his other shows like Captain Scarlet, Supercar, Fireball XL5, none of those ever really played over here. So he's he's probably not as main, he's probably known more mainstream for like Space 1999. But his Super Marionation shows really never hit. Like the the fans know who he is and the fans are obsessed. But um, the general public, you say Thunderbirds to them and they probably have no idea what you're talking about. Joe 90, forget Joe 90. They don't. They're like, who's that? It's like, well, you're missing that. So and I have recently started watching uh, all the old UFO episodes. My dad used to love that. And again, something we didn't have ready access to. But now with the internet, I can start watching them. So I've, I've seen maybe the first dozen or so episodes. I'm really enjoying the show. And it's fun to see how things evolved over time. Like you can kind of see what here sort of turned into Space 1999 and what. And from what I understand, they were going to do like another season of UFO. But they abandoned that. And it sort of became Space 1999. And Space 1999, I don't know if it's like this in the UK, but here in the United States, it is this fairly bloody battle between Star Trek and Space 1999. And <laughs> I don't see the two different things as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, there's a big sort of that that got pretty horrible back in the 70s. But yeah, I can. I'm happy with all of them. Star Trek, Space 1999, Galactica, Buck Rogers, Next Gen. I'll take it all and, you know, I'll mix and match. But yeah, there there used to be some horrible uh, sort of infighting on that one. At least over here, I've never heard about a Space 99 conflict with the Trekkies, but it's fair enough. Yeah. Adam, do you want to throw out our socials? Yeah, so you can find us on all the usual socials, just on under Alien vs. Predator Galaxy. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube as well. And of course, our website, if you want to check out our discussion boards, is avpgalaxy.net. And if you want to follow me personally, I'm on Twitter. That's the only place I like to be stalked these days, and that is at underscore Corporal Hicks. That is... Um, AVP, uh, Star Trek, Stargate, Airsoft, Halo, general nerdy stuff, uh, because, you know, that's me. What about you, Adam? Yeah, if you'd like to follow me personally, it's on Twitter and Instagram under RidgeTop21. So just for the sign-off, it's um, just this is Aaron Percival, this is Adam, and then if you can do This Is Wyatt Weed and then do your best Arnie, get into the chopper. (laughs) And this is Wyatt Weed, and everyone, please, get to the chopper! Ah! <laughs> we, we can just use that one yeah yeah i think that would be absolutely fine thank you everybody for listening and thank you white for joining us yeah well, thank, thank you very you much guys. white it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun <laughs>